how I got into the family office space, um, it was a bit serendipitous. Um, when I ran my hedge fund in the 90s, they didn't call them family offices. They called them rich people. So I had a bunch of rich people who were clients who are now called family offices. And when I, after I sold my company, I took about a year off and, and, and just, you know, traveled and, you know, did, did some things. Um, and then I started to invest. And my thought process was when I started the company, it really wasn't a business. It was basically a way for me to get better deal flow and execution. So if I put one or $2 million into a direct deal, that might be a lot for an individual, but that's nothing on a cap table. I'm, I'll be the smallest LP at Carlisle or Apollo. So my thought process was if I could put one or 2 million and I could get 98 million or 198 million of family office money also, now I could take down 100 million or 200 million, maybe I'll be the first call rather than the 13th call. And it's been very effective. So it's kind of, I call it first call, first call alpha. It doesn't really mean anything other than I made it up. Um, but basically, um, because I have access to so many family offices um, and can place a deal fairly quickly uh, or say no fairly quickly, which is actually equally, if not more important, because people don't want to be held up. If, if a deal doesn't work, um, it's not, it, I will just say, right, it's just not a fit. I don't have to explain myself. And that's much better than having them just hang on. And I think that people do appreciate that. So I started speaking at these conferences. Um, I started doing investments and I started speaking at these conferences and a lot of the conferences, you know, I'm friends with the people, but you know, it was sort of like you pay 25 grand and you're now the expert in real estate and you pay 25,000 and you're the expert in venture capital or, or private equity. So it's kind of a pay to play model. And when my family is, you know, we work with about hundred family offices anywhere between 250 million up to 30 billion. And we don't touch anything in the public markets. I think the public markets where I made my money in the hedge fund world in the 90s is a very difficult place to make money. Um, I, you know, I, I would argue with anybody, you know, I have money, my money in ETFs in the public markets. It's hard to create alpha. Having said that, and what you guys do in real estate, private equity, venture capital, you certainly can. And real estate represents about 22% of family office money. Uh, it's second behind um, private equity, which is about 24%. Probably going to, yours is probably going to go up a little bit um, as hedge fund uh, allocation comes down a little bit because your performance in general has been really good, you, you guys and private equity. So I started speaking at these conferences and um, I realized that it was kind of, it was, it was kind of fruitless as a pay to play model. And I, I just came because I would speak. So I wanted to put together something that really made sense for people to go to. So I, 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 um, I teach classes at Stanford University and I'm on the uh, advisory board and I've been pushing them for about the last two years to put together a family office center at Stanford. And about six months ago, we got green lighted to go ahead and do it. So basically um, the whole point of it is to create an ecosystem with Stanford University um, to allow family offices to become less fragmented, more efficient, less siloed, and more professional. And what I found through my, you know, decade and a half years working with, they now call them family offices, they didn't back, back then, is that many of them, most of them are fragmented, inefficient, and siloed. So if you guys are sponsors and you guys are really good at real estate, I know Rob's got a great track record. You're really good at real estate. You've got a good deal. doesn't matter what, what asset class. It could be multifamily. It could be self-storage. It doesn't matter. Um, realize that the family offices that you're speaking to, they're not necessarily, because they're worth billions of dollars sometimes, 
it doesn't, there's not a direct correlation between the wealth and how, how efficient they are. Um, if you think about it, who are these family offices? The guy who sold Beanie Babies, the guy who sold Guest Jeans, uh, Giorgio Armani, Giorgio Perfume, a chain of gas stations, oil wells. So people have these liquidity events and then they have a capital, but it's a completely different skill set to sell Beanie Babies or Five Hour Energy, which is, was fantastic, than it is to take a billion, grow it to two, not spoil the kids, do some wealth transfer, do some estate planning and grow the assets. So you've got very, it's a mismatch, very inefficient. And again, I'm generalizing. You've got family offices like the Pritzkers, the Dells, um, Bloomberg, um, Sergey Brin, they've institutionalized it and they can compete directly with Apollo. But when you guys are going out to family offices, understand that they're not, necess not going to necessarily know everything you think they're going to probably know. So don't assume that they know everything because they made their money in their usually in a different area other than real estate. Um, I, I do think that um, that you've got, look, you got $10 trillion in capital in family offices. You've got $65 trillion, which is coming downstream from the baby boomers the next gen in the next 15 years. So this market, the family office market, it's bigger than the private equity and venture capital markets combined. And nobody really knows how to get their hand around it. So advice for you guys, um, if that's one of the things you'd, you'd like me to do, is the family offices, these are, it's all about relationships. So a lot of these, remember, 68% of family offices were started since 2000. And half of those were started since the crash. So this is a new phenomenon. And the model itself doesn't work because only 25% of families make it to G2, 10 make it to G3, and five make it to G4. So everyone wants to be a family office. They've got a, they're inefficient fragments and siloed and the model doesn't work. And that's what we're trying to create. So I, I think when you guys are going in, the first, second, and third thing, if you're gonna work with family office, they wanna know is not how smart you are, where you went to college, what, even what your track record is. They need to know they could trust you. The first, second, third thing they would need to know is, can they trust you? The fourth thing is, oh, okay, what's your track record? Tell me about your strategy. And that's flipped because if you look at the pension funds, um, the first thing they're going to do is say, what's your three-year, five-year, 10-year track record? What's your biggest drawdown? They're going to look at the analytics first. Family offices don't. They look at the people. And remember that a lot of these family offices were formed because in 2008, when over half these family offices were formed during the crash, these hedge funds put up things called gates, right? I'm familiar with it because I run a hedge fund. But if you're not, you're, which meant you, you can't sell. And these people who had money, they thought that people from Wall Street in general were taking advantage of them. So they, they really lost trust in Wall Street. So the first thing I would tell you is to get into a family office, everybody in this room, I don't know how many people are there, but everybody in this room, I guarantee you knows one, two, you know, several different family offices. The best way, advice I can give is to really get in cl as close as you can with one or two. And what happens is if you're doing things and adding value, like let's say you're in, you're trying to get in bed with a family office and, you know, they're looking for this, they, they like multifamily or they like self-storage or whatever it is. It's not going to happen overnight. Give them a lot of information. Just keep giving without expecting to receive anything in return. And I think when people see that you're giving, that you're like, 
oh, I know you like self-storage. By the way, this self-storage unit in Tallahassee just sold for 5X, which in, and normally it's 3X. Great. So like you're calling them without selling them anything. So the more touch points you have where you could add value to them without selling, which ultimately is what you want to do, the better. Once you've established a relationship with one and once they can trust you, I promise you the best thing they could do, it, it's much better for me to say that Rob is great than Rob to say that he's great. So third party endorsements are the best thing you could possibly have. So if you have a family office that um, can say, hey, you know what, I've worked with Rob before, great guy, buses, you know, young, but he buses butt and he, you know, and, he, and I trust him implicitly. They want to share that with other families and families want to share that. And then it kind of just, it steamrolls. So I would start by finding one or two, get entrenched with, um, don't try to sell them. Even if you've got a deal, which is the best deal you've ever had. And, you know, we all feel, you know, that whatever we currently have is the best we've got. Don't, um, just have patience with it. And once you have patience with it, and then once you've worked with the family office, um, and I, I would also, you're not going to necessarily be dealing with a matriarchs or patriarchs. You're probably going to be dealing with the CIO, the chief investment officer for many of these family offices. Um, add value, let them figure out how that, that you're there, you're a giver, not a taker. Um, the, the biggest turnoff is even if your deal, even if Rob has a deal that is the best he's ever seen by far. I still wouldn't show that deal yet because they have you have to implant the trust. And that's the the what I really, really emphasize. So, you know, a lot of um, a lot of people, everyone's trying to get into you know, banks are setting up family office divisions, accounting firms are setting up family office divisions, law firm, and a lot of it's just optics. I'm like, you know, what what is it? It's just it they have the division, they're just calling it family offices because that's where all the money is right now. That's where all the money is going to continue to be. So if all the banks and law firms and accounting firms are trying to set up these family office divisions, and then you have all these people having these conferences for family offices, I think the most important thing to do, if you guys are good at what you do, and I'll take as a given that you are in whatever specific niche you're in in real estate, um, keep showing them things. Uh, you know, Even if you're, you're investing yourself or you, you have a, a small fund and show them quarterly reports, show them what you're doing, any content, people want to see content, what you're writing. Um, I would also, um, you know, social media, I don't believe in social media in general. There's a lot of problems with, I shouldn't say that. LinkedIn, I think is, is, is a phenomenal platform, but I think the social media, like, you know, I'm talking about, I've got 17 and 20 year old daughter. So the Instagram and the TikTok and, and the Snapchat, whatever. You play with it, do whatever you want. LinkedIn is a very powerful tool. And what's surprising is a lot of people look at LinkedIn. So if you're trying to, again, get in with family offices, um, write stuff, write content, post things. Rob's phenomenal at this. That and he's when he posts something, he's not just showing, look how good I am. He's actually showing, educating people about different things. And people appreciate that. And then when people see him four, five, 30, 40 times, they know who he is. And then when he makes a phone call, if he has a deal that he wants to show them, they already know that he's already 
done a lot of the, the, the legwork and they're going to be able to have a certain level of trust. So I, I think that if I'm in your shoes and I'm trying to raise money, I think that family offices is definitely the best place to do it. And you guys individually will have to figure out which, which family office is best for you to kind of get into. And then once you're there to kind of penetrate that and, and go further. So that's kind of a 30,000 foot level um, landscape of, you know, where I think the family offices are. I think that there, again, it just, it's numbers. I mean, it's, if it's bigger than the entire private equity and venture capital markets combined, this is a massive market and it's not going away and it will become more uh, efficient and less siloed. And that's one of the things we're trying to do at Stanford. So I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Um, you know, I wish there was a silver bullet where I could just say do A, B, and C, and then you'll be in front of 10 family offices. It doesn't work like that, but it does work that if you show value, if you show that they could trust you and show and show that you you care and you're not looking just to, to raise money, but you're at looking to add value, you'd be surprised. And then you're in you're in bed with one family office getting your second is exponentially easier and getting your fifth and 10th after that is much, much easier. So that's kind of the world that I, the way I see the world of, of family offices. Um, we're trying, you know, at Stanford, the, the reason we had a conference, it was literally, um, I had Kirkland and EY, because we do a lot of work with both those firms, sponsor the conference. And I just said, look, you guys sponsor it. It's, uh, I'll get you the world-class speakers. And we have phenomenal speakers. We have people speaking in your world, we had Tim Callahan, who was Sam Zell's partner, um, and um, Lauren Pressman, who spoke um, from Eric Schmidt's family office on real estate. And we had 880 families. So they're from six continents. And this was a, this was a virtual Zoom call. And I've never put together one of these things. So like I, have, I was clueless on how to, how to do it other than I can get the people. The point of the fact is it works. And it worked not because of me. It worked because the quality of speakers that we had that family offices don't want to be sold. And the problem with many of these conferences are the guy next to you is talking to you, but really he's just trying to sell you something. And that model doesn't work. And I think that's why we had you know, such success with that. And then we're going to have our next family office conference at Stanford. Um, I'll send Rob a link. Um, it's going to be on March 10th. It'll be live. Uh, David Rubenstein will be the keynote speaker. Um, and you know we'll have some, some really good speakers. But I would encourage you to go the route of trying, working hard. It, it, it's a little, it does get discouraging from time to time because, you know, an institution is never going to say, I'm going to Europe for a month and I'll get back to you, right? A family office, you're going to get, you're, you're going to have them say that sometimes. And that does get frustrating. But if you can stick with it, zero question, it's the best way, best way to raise capital. And going forward, three to five years, it's going to increase exponentially. Thank you very much for that. That was uh, that was really cool. I'll I'll kick off with a question, which is, or maybe a couple, which is, I, you brought up a recurring theme, which I've heard this weekend about third party, uh, third party, uh, you know, reputation. Right, it's better to have someone else speak on your behalf than you yourself. And we had a couple of private equity firms yesterday speaking, and one was saying something and, and kind of displaying their understanding about a deal or, or their conviction about a deal. And then the other said, wow, well, I'd love to piggyback and do a club deal and come in as, a, as an LP with you on this deal. And um, so 
what's the best way to actually let a partner of yours know that, hey, I, I like you a lot, but how do, how, how do you introduce me to your friends, you know, whether it be another PE firm or a family office that, you know, I could potentially work with as well? Well, you know, it's hard to say, to go up to somebody and say, hey, say something really nice about me or that, that I'm really good at what I do. Um, but you could do stuff like that by, you could do it yourself. So by po what you do, Robin, by posting stuff, content, um, value add content that's not selling, which you do a great job of on LinkedIn. And again, don't, don't underestimate the power of LinkedIn. LinkedIn is, 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 is in, in our world and social media, it's as popular and, and valid for us as it is TikTok for my 17 year old daughter who literally lives on her phone. Um, so, um, but the third party endorsements, um, you know, I'm sure in your, uh, everyone in this room has one, two, 10 people who think really, really highly of you, who you've done a really good job for. Uh, a couple things you could do is, um, again, this isn't going to be a game changer, but get, see if you could use them as a, as a reference, number one. So just say, hey, you know what? I know we've worked together for 10 years. We've had a pretty good track record. Would it be okay if I used you as a reference? That reference is going to be better than you telling, telling them how good you are. If that reference is somebody who's got a lot of credibility and he says, hey, Rob is really good. You should listen to him that's much more powerful than Rob saying, hey, I'm really good and listen to me, right? So that's one thing. Secondly, you could, um, on LinkedIn and in your um, social media profile, you could put, toge you know, put together um, people who will, will write, will say a sentence or two sentences about you. I've known Rob for 10 years. He's super honest and, you know, super always, you know, works 14 hours a day and you know, whatever that is that's also going to add. So the more people in a higher level that are endorsing you, the better. And you guys may be the best in the world or in, in your specific niche, but coming, getting the endorsement from somebody else makes a huge difference. If I get a phone call and say, oh, I heard great things about you from so-and-so. Well, the next part of the conversation is just really telling them the deal that I'm working on right now. There's no selling involved. So that's why I think it's so important. Tom, you have a question? Yeah, I was wondering what you see um, on the real estate private equity side. Traditionally, you see LP, family offices happy to be LPs for slum and, on a, and maybe on a touch of feel of deal sending. But I'm wondering if you're seeing any more appetite for I like to sponsor more of a blind pool, because that's been hard to do lately. And then lastly, is there any movement towards being really into a deal as like a majority capital partner really being in the business? Do you, do you see it going one way or the other? Is it a mixed bag in terms of where the family office will attach? So really good questions. Um, first, one of the major trends in the in family office world, and not just in your world in real estate, but has been people want to do direct investments. And why? They want, they want to save money. They don't want to pay the 220. But that's a flawed model. And the problem is that from 2008, so post-crash, pre-COVID, everything worked. So in your world, in real estate, most things went up. In private equity, most things went up. In venture capital, Bitcoin, stock market, everything went up. So these people who did the direct deals who don't have your skill set in, in real estate, um, the, 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 the negative is that they've already made money. They think it's easier than it really is. 
and it's not that hard to make money in real estate in the last eight years, you know, pre-pandemic. Um, so that's what you have going against you. What you have going for you is, you know, most of these family offices, they're just looking, I, I would position myself as almost an outsourced um, family, outsourced real estate division of a family office, right? So the family office made their money in, in oil wells and they're worth a billion dollars and they've got whatever. They could hire two or three young, young people pay them a half million bucks a year and put together a team, but that gets expensive. Or how I would position myself if I'm in your shoes is look, I, I only do one thing. I just do real estate. And specifically, I only focus in multifamily or I only focus in self-storage or whatever it is. Um, I'll be that outsourced division for you. So if you approach the family office like that and you explain to them, look, you have two options. One, you can hire pe two people just as smart as me. It's going to cost you half a million bucks per person to do it. Or you could pay nothing and I could just show you the deals and tell you what, what I think. I think that's the best way to do it. And I've seen people do, do a really good job of positioning themselves as kind of the outsourced real estate arm of the family office. Um, you're not going to, that's not going to work with a family office that made their money in real estate because they've already got the experts. But most family offices did not make their money per se in real estate. You've got a lot of people who made their money in technology. And you know, they're they they developed an app and it sold for a billion dollars. They're clueless on all the different asset classes. And you could be a huge value add, but position yourself that you're working with them as sort of like a partner rather than trying to sell them something. I mean, they'd want to be seeing and touching an asset and and numbers as opposed to a little more investing in a sponsor real estate, would you say? That's well, I, I, I think the, um, so the blind pool, I think it's going to come back. I think as we head into a recession and we will, and look, the last eight years, you know, pre-pandemic, everything went up, but the world doesn't work like that. Everything goes, the market's cyclical. So as, as things come down, I think that's when you guys are going to really be called on because when the market gets down, people will realize, well, maybe these direct investments, maybe this multifamily deal that I did and I made a lot of money, maybe there's a little, I had some tailwinds or maybe there's a little luck involved or maybe everything in Florida went up and I'm not, it's not that I'm that smart. Um, that's when it's going to be people like you who are going to really add a lot of value because I think they're going to come back to, I don't mind paying 220 um, because at the end of the day, um, by paying 220, I, you know, I tell people, would, when they asked me that question, I said, look, would you rather pay 110 and, and, and lose money or pay 220? And it, it, it just dumb it down. And they, and it does make sense. So if I've got a heart condition, I'm not going to try to find the cheapest doctor. I'm going to try to find the absolute best doctor. So I think people will be concerned less about the fees. Um, and, and the 220 model, it does work and it is aligned. The problem that P, the family offices have is not going to be at your guys' level. It's the multi-billion dollar funds. Because they have become, they've bastardized the business and it's become an AUM game. So what, you know, private equity and venture capital um, disrupted the public markets in the early 80s because it was a better model. 2% covers the overhead, 20%, I only make money if you make money. That's a better model than reporting to a guy like me every 90 days to see if earning, how earnings are. You can't, you, none of you could grow your company if every 90 days you had to report to me and, and I told, and 
and you know, and explain how you're doing. You couldn't make investments. You couldn't do things. The problem is the private equity and venture capital real estate industry, they bastardized the business and they realized, and again, I'm generalizing, but the 2% became an annuity and that's every single year. So on $2 billion, 2% into 10 year fund, that's a lot of recurring revenue, irrespective of how you do. So I had a, I had a guy did a roll up of logistics companies uh, great track record. And um, he needed 150 million. There's a niche strategy in the Northeast. And the placement agent came to him and said, we look, I, I shopped it around. We were able to get 500 million. And the guy's like, terrific. We need 150 and we're getting started. Placement agent literally came to his house in an apartment in New York City and wrote down 2% of 500 million equals X. 2% of 150 million equals Y. What am I missing? And my friend is incredulous. He looks at her and she goes, he goes, if I do what you want me to do, there won't be a fund too. Because yes, I can make more money today by doing what you're suggesting. But my, I, can't play, I can't place 500 million. I can only place 150 for this strategy. And then I've got to do not just A deals, which is what I should be doing, but I have to do B and C deals. And the performance isn't going to be good. And then I'm not going to have a fund too. So I always try to look at things from a five-year lens, like how, are, how is this going to play out in five years? And that's the biggest problem that people have with the, the blind pool is it's not you guys. It's just these a $25 billion fund. There's not a direct correlation. There's almost an inverse correlation. If you have that much money and you have to place it, um, that's not a good place to be. And there was a, a good friend of mine, Michael Loeb, who founded Priceline and a few other you know large companies. Um, he was meeting with the head of SoftBank one day and um, there was a company that they had called Branded. Uh, it's irrelevant what, what they did. And they asked them, you know, we just, they just paid $250 million. And they said, what do you think? They just asked, because it was a direct to consumer um, um, business. And Michael's, he's a New Yorker. He's like, well, I think you, it didn't make sense and you're way overpaid, but I'm sure you know more than I do. So why'd you buy it? And apparently the reason they bought it was, um, well, SoftBank has $100 billion, right? So, so $250 million is 25 basis points. It was a woman-owned company, and he could be wrong. So the, the thought process is, look, it's a woman-owned company. We want to bring in business, and I might be wrong. I also agree it's, a, it's going to probably be a bad investment. So think about the mentality of that. So the, the problem is, and the point I'm trying to make is there's so much money in, out there right now. Soft, there, are not, there are not enough companies. So a lot in your world, in real estate, if it's a niche business, if there's a certain segment that you're going after, um, you don't want to be in a position where you've got $500 million and realistically, you can only deploy 200 or I'm making up numbers, but you can only deploy a certain part of that to be most more efficient. So focus on that, focus on the returns. And I, I think that the, the model, uh, look, in, in real estate, it'll never go away. It, it, that's where everyone's, many of these, most of the families, if they have a liquidity event, they want, the thing they want to do is make their money in real estate. These tech, I mean, technology, yeah. I mean, you're going to have the, the tech companies are going to grow exponentially and you're going to have somebody create DocuSign and, and I work with the guy who created DocuSign, but in all these apps, but at the end of the day, real estate, something tangible that you could touch. Everybody knows it. And most people who have a lot of money have real estate in their portfolio and will continue to. So Ron, where do, 
family offices hang out aside from conferences where do they hang out and where do they summer where do they summer, <laughs> where do they summer? <laughs> yeah that would be a good idea i can get you some addresses um so i i think that um and again it's a it's I know it was a bit of a rhetorical question, but it's really also a really good question. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, family offices, most of them are very philanthropic, not all, but many of them are very philanthropic, some very, some somewhat. So whatever causes you're into, and you need to be authentic. So if, you, if you're into climate problems or you're into poverty or, or education, whatever it is, get involved in some charities. The, the family offices, the very wealthy people, they're there. And if you're working with a, with a family office and your goal on that ch charity is to you know help save the climate or help educate or stop gun violence or wh whatever it's important to you guys, um, you've got a different relationship now. You, you know, you're now working with them. You're not just trying to sell them something, right? If you don't, if, if you haven't been working with them on that charity. So I would say one, whatever, be authentic, but whatever causes are important to you, get involved in a couple philanthropies and charities because that's where there's a lot of people. I, I think that um, the, the conferences in general, um, personally, I think they're a waste of time now. And again, I'm generalizing. You'll meet one or two. It's mostly service providers speaking to other service providers. And there's just a couple family offices who actually attend these events. Um, so I think that... Um, getting involved in a few different philanthropies and charities that, that, that that's important to you. I mean, don't get involved in climate if you don't really, if that's not your thing, because you know you, you need to be authentic with it. But people people appreciate, and again, a lot of the people in this room are, I'm looking at the, the front, you're, you're young. Um, people appreciate, just be authentic. I mean, the more authentic you are and, you know, the, the the more believable you are, the more likely they are to work with you. Um, you don't have to have, not everyone in this room has the best track record in every single asset, but you, you can't. But if people knew that I don't, you know, I might not have the best, you know, I all I can tell you is I've done multifamily for 20 years or 10 years and I not every deal's worked out, but I've busted my butt. And if you talk to my clients, they will tell you what happens during, during the downtimes. I'm communicating with them more and more. And that's important. So it's the whole business of what, what you're trying to do. It's all about relationships. That's it. It's not, it's not anything more than that. And intuitively you'll think, well, shit, I got a great, I, I've got a 30% IRR track record in the last, that's, it's not irrelevant but that's not the most relevant. The most relevant is be authentic and be somebody that they can trust. And then you'll be able to get in the door and hopefully do more deals with them. And then once you get in with one, you'll get in with two, you go with five. Can you rely on in introductions, advisories, you know, familyoffice.com type of situations to meet family offices? No. <laughs> 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 Good question. Yeah. What advice would you give to a younger entrepreneur who has strong relationships with uh, 
other younger professionals who work in family offices, for example, an associate or someone who's worth a right. right. And again, your friend, right. And your friends um, who work for these other family offices, you know, developing relate authentic, not your friends with them because they work for family office, your friends with them, you like hanging out with them. Um, that's going to be really key. And remember, you've got $65 trillion that's being transferred from the baby boomers to your generation in the next 15 years. So the next gen, the, the 20s and 30s, those the I call them kids, but the people who are in their 20s and 30s, they're going to be the decision makers, right? And you're young, many people in this room are young, you're going to grow with them. And, you know, I, I just think that by being with them, by finding out what, what they invested, finding out, I know they like uh, multifamily in the Southeast because that's where all the growth is. And they really like Florida. Um, any article you see from Barrett's or, or, or you read something from Bloomberg or you read, just forward it to them. You know, just thinking about you, I saw, I know you're really into real estate and whatever, just thought this would be interesting. It, it's shocking. <laughs> How many, how few people do it. And the other thing is like, if I say, Hey, you know, I'll, 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 I'll introduce you to so-and-so do it. I mean, the, the biggest value add you guys can give is to introduce families to other families. So if you've got two or three friends who work for family offices, introduce them to other family offices, because that's really the best thing you can do for them. And that's adding a lot of value. It's you're not selling anything. You're just saying, Hey, I know Rob, my friend Rob works for a family office and um, I want to introduce you to Bob who also works for a family office. You two should get together and you know, I'm out of the loop. I just think it's value add. By doing stuff like that, by going out and giving rather than taking, which is kind of, we're all, our society is very myopic, right? We want things right away. But by going out and giving, you will get back 10 times in return. I promise you. Um, it, and I don't know, I can't tell you how it's going to play out but the dots will be connected to do that. And so I would just say, continue to network, continue to um, hang out with those people, assuming that these are friends and you're hanging out for the right reasons. Um, Cause then it's easy. Then you just pick up the phone and say, Hey Rob, I want I got I just want to show you something. I just saw something really, this is a really good deal. Well, if you're a friend of that person, you're not calling them every day with that, right? You're calling them once a year, once every whatever. Um, when you see something, it's authentic, they'll look at it and you'll develop relationships, but it's all about developing relationships. Thank you. Uh, how would you say uh, we should manage the relationship between the sponsor and, uh, and the family office outside of the realm of, uh, of the real estate investment? So for example, we, we like to send for the holidays, we like to send like a, a fruit platter uh, where the family stays. We got very good feedback on this. Um, so if you have any other idea on different values, because not everyone has a charisma of Rob to stand in front of the camera and speak. Uh, yeah, so. no, it's a, it's a great question. And again, a lot of the touch points when you have are not um, just the transaction, right? So. We'll, we'll start with your goal is to try to raise money from these wealthy family offices so you can invest in your expertise. So that's kind of your goal. Um, but the soft stuff, like I run Tiger 20, a couple of Tiger 21 groups in Chicago. I, it's fairly big in New York. Um, 
And, you know, one of the things I would say is, yes, it's nice to have a fruit basket in, I don't know how many LPs you have, but if you're dealing with these family offices, they're not that met. I mean, you're not going to be working with hundreds of the, you're going to be working with four or eight. You ever send anybody a handwritten note? I've got, I, I, I send handwritten notes to, to all the people. I have my wife write it because she's got better penmanship, but I send hand, handwritten notes. You tell me the last time you've got something in the mail that you're looking forward to. Never. It's always a bill or sort of junk, junk mail. By doing something handwritten, it's just showing that you, that you, you, you're care. I was like, when I started out, I mean, when I read my hedge fund, I, I was 28. I think 29 when I started it and I was competing against a guy who was much more qualified than me and just had a much bit longer track record because he was twice my age um, and he had done quite well. But when I was trying to present to this family office, they were, again, they were rich people back then. And when he was trying to present to it, he just came back with all these statistics and I came back and I just authentically wrote, look, I know I'm only 29 and I can't do anything about that. And I can't do anything about the, and the other person I'm sure is terrific, but here's why it's so important for me and why I think I, I, I think I could earn your business. And I just wrote, and I don't even remember what I wrote, but he told me the reason he went with me is because I wrote that two page letter. So again, the fact that people think you're going above and beyond. And again, going to Harry and David's and giving everyone the same fruit basket, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing something. If you know this family office, they love sailing, right? You don't have to spend a ton of money, but you know, if you're in Newport, Rhode Island, and you know, you take a picture of a couple photos of, you know, I know you love sailing, and I'm at the new, I'm at the museum, the National um, Sailing Museum. Thought you might enjoy this. Just stuff like that that shows you're thinking about them makes a huge difference. That's going to be the differentiator. It's not whether your return is 13% versus 15% and they're going to necessarily go with the guy who has 15%. I would go with the guy who has 13% and I trust implicitly and I know has my back versus the guy who's got a little better track record. My accountant, I'll give you a perfect example. My accountant gets more stressed out than I do when I'm getting close to the deadline to be late for my to pay my taxes. He's freaking out. I want to work with that guy. It's, it impacts me, it doesn't impact him, but he's so freaked out that I'm gonna be potentially be late and pay a penalty, but he's like, Ron, we gotta do this, we gotta get this done, and he gets stressed out. I wanna work with that guy, he, 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 he cares, and, I'll, I'll, and he'll be my accountant for life. So things like that matter, and also put yourself in the other person's shoes, because look, look, at the end of the day, these are just, you know, the most of the people you're dealing with, they're not like the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts, the Carnegies that are like multi-generation family. I mean, some are, but most of them are not. Most of them have, they've had a, a liquidity event in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, maybe 30. Um, and they're just people, they're just like you guys. They're, they're, they're no different. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, even a little thing, like if somebody's, if you know somebody's philanthropy, somebody's cause is, you know, prostate, my, you know, my dad passed from prostate cancer at a very young age. So if you know that somebody's cause, donate 25 bucks. It doesn't say the amount you're donating, but just you, I, this person was donated $25 on behalf of so-and-so. 
it, it's just a question of being thoughtful. And it's almost like you have to take the mentality that, that's instilled in us on Wall Street, where it's like, you know, AUM, get the assets management, go a little bit slower, which is sometimes harder, particularly for the younger people. But by slowing down, you're going to jump ahead several steps. And one of the things I remember I was at a speech, Jeff Bezos gave a speech, and he had talked about, um, you know, everyone tells me how brilliant I am. And, and yeah, he, he actually is brilliant. But he goes, the reason I've been successful is, is that I compete on my time frame. I have patient capital, right? So my time frame is larger. So if everybody that I'm competing with has a three to five year time frame, and I've got a 10 year time frame, I'm going to do better, period, end of conversation. And if you look at things like space, right? Nobody's going to make money in space today. Who's doing space? The multi-billionaires who could afford to do it, and they could be patient. And maybe in 15 or 20 years, Elon Musk will make a lot of money. Or maybe the guy, um, Richard Branson, will make a lot of money in it. But they've got patient capital. So I, I think that the, the main thing people want to know is, are your interests aligned with theirs? And that's really it. And, you know, you could have, you know, you might have a bad year. Um, let's say you have a 220 fund and you had, a, you had an off year and it was nothing to do with you. It had to do with a pandemic that happened in Wuhan, China. I mean, that's nobody's fault. You know what, this, this year, you know, I, I, I certainly didn't cause a pandemic, but this year I'm going to waive the management fee or I'm going to cut it in half or just little things like that. So when, when, they're, they're port, when they're down and everyone's portfolio is going to go down a little bit, you're basically saying to them, you know what, I'm going to, I know you, I'm a steward of your capital and, you know, we, it wasn't my fault, but we had an off year. So I'm going to take a little bit less little things like that. And it doesn't have to be no management fee. It doesn't even have to be 1%. You could say 25 basis points or 50 or whatever you want to do, but it's all about alignment of interest. And if they know that they trust you and you care, it comes through. I mean, you guys in the room, I mean, you know people who are full of shit and you also know people who are truly authentic. And the people that are authentic are people that you want to work with. And by presenting yourself as the guru in, in this, and again, you may be, but you want to position yourself as somebody that, that's authentic and they could trust um, more so than I know more about multifamily than anyone in, in the country. That's what I would say. We've got time for one more question. Yeah. Hey, Ron, uh, thanks for the presentation. Uh, you mentioned that family offices will pick up as a source of capital over the next three or four years. I'm wondering, what do you think is driving that? And how can we take advantage of that trend as we build relationships with these offices? Well, yeah, I mean, the statistics are that there is roughly 10, there's 17,000 family offices roughly in the world. There's $10 trillion in capital roughly, and there's 65 trillion that's coming downstream in the next 15 years. Largest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. So next 15 years is gonna be a boom for the family offices. Um, just getting in front of them. And again, just sending articles, sending things that are value add, it's not gonna happen overnight. And I know it's, you'd prefer to me to give you a silver bullet and say, you know, you do A, B, and C, and then you'll get in the door with family offices. But I could just tell you that, that how I did it. And again, it wasn't, I didn't have a blueprint, right? So I just 
I didn't write the two. I, I had no idea by writing this two page note. And I really did care because this would have been my biggest, it was my biggest client at the time. I really cared to get that client. And he could tell that I cared because I, I spent a couple hours writing a two page handwritten letter. And that's why he went to me. Um, the, somebody's kid has special needs, cerebral palsy, whatever it is, you're donating something. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a huge dollar amount. It just, this is a gift on behalf of whatever. Get involved in charities that they're involved in. And the more touch points you have with families when you're not selling, the better. So that when you do sell, when you do have something to sell, they're, they're like, they've already known you for 10 other times when you work with them, when they've seen you at charity events, when they've seen you at dinners, when they've seen you at ball games. And now you're saying, I, you know what, I got a good deal I want to show you. That's the time to do it, not at the beginning. Thanks. Thank you so much, Ron, for joining us. I really actually learned a lot and it was uh, very actionable. I haven't heard uh, such, you know, so many good things that I could just write down and, you know, handwritten notes, philanthropy, be the outsourced real estate arm of the family office. So uh, those are things that I'm going to do actually right away. Well, again, I, I look, it's great. I wish I could be there in person. Um, but it's great meeting all you, Rob, you know, continue doing what you're doing. You know, Rob does a tremendous job. Um, and again, 90, I mean, maybe even hundred percent of what he does, he's, he's not making money when he posts these things on LinkedIn and, and do, and does what he, th this, this conference, he's adding value. And at some point by adding value, he, people will see that. And then maybe he will have a deal that some, he will want to show to some people. So I think what Rob's doing is like a, a great example of how I would do it if I'm in, in your guys' shoes. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys.